we as Americans are very, very proud of our rights, aren't we? We're so protective of our rights. If we even sniff something coming down that's infringing or limiting our rights, then we want everyone to know. Because our nation was founded on individual rights. In our founding document, it says that all men are created equal with certain unalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our entire way of relating to each other is based on individual rights. We are steeped in this as a society. And so we view everything through this lens of rights, even as Christians. Last week, Zach was showing us uh, from chapter 8 that we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, especially in areas of conscience. Using that illustration of the traffic light and the traffic police officer uh, waving, the, waving you through the light or waving the person through the light. And those of us who fully uh, recognize and understand our freedoms in Christ and we are not burdened in particular areas, that we are not to be the person that's laying our horn on to get the weaker brother out of the way, to make a decision. And keeping in mind that we are often the weaker brother, which I think we so easily forget. And in chapter 9, Paul continues in this line of thinking as it relates to our rights as Christians. And Paul breaks this down in his letter. In verses 1 to 14, he explains that we, we have rights. We have certain rights. Uh, in verse 12 and then in 15 to 18... He's saying that we Christians don't always exercise our rights. And then in 19 to 27, he's telling us never to be enslaved to our rights. We have rights. Paul has just told the Corinthians not to eat meat sacrificed to idols for the sake of the weaker Christians. And so it begs the question, if we are always forfeiting our rights, then what rights do we have? I thought we had freedom in Christ. I thought we were no longer bound to uh, the law in the sense that it has been fulfilled in Christ, right? And the Corinthians are hearing Paul and they're reading his earlier letters uh, in regard to these issues and they're saying, what is all this waffling around, Paul? You know, one, you tell us that we have freedom in Christ and we can eat what we like. Oh, but uh, we can't eat meat sacrificed to idols, uh, and we can't allow the immoral brother to be among us, and we can't even eat with him. That all sounds like law. And who is Paul anyway? Is he even an apostle? And they perhaps question Paul's authority on this. And so Paul says, You Corinthians of all people should know that I am an apostle. I laid the foundation of this church. The fruit that is being born from this place should be evidence enough. And then he turns back to the main issue. What rights do we have, if any? 
And so he asks these rhetorical questions. Do we have uh, the right to eat and drink? Do we have the right to take on a, a believing wife like the other apostles? Paul and Barnabas most certainly had that right. And then Paul gives this, uh, these illustrations from daily life for them. Uh, one whose sacrifices should be able to live off of the sacrifice. Think of a soldier. Don't they receive wages from the king whom they serve? What about a farmer? If it's a tenant farmer, don't they, uh, aren't they able to take some of the fruit of their own labor? Of course they are. A shepherd who tends a flock, aren't they able to drink the milk that comes from the flock? Of course they are. But he doesn't leave it there. I don't want to just leave you with a a human argument, he says. Look at what the law says. Look at what the very word of God says. Deuteronomy chapter 25, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Ministers love this passage. means they get paid. Is it because God loves the ox that that's why this was written? No, it's a principle of life. You pay for labor. If you muzzle an ox, you should not expect much labor out of the ox. Uh, If you withhold pay from a worker, then you shouldn't expect much from the worker. And it is wrong to do so. Paul is in no way trying to eliminate rights. They are given by God, and it is our duty to defend rights and to proclaim them. So you can see that the American forefathers understood this, that this is how God created us, and that uh, what that means in terms of our relating to each other, one another, in our rights. You will never find Paul eliminating human rights. Even when uh, Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi and the authorities have just beaten them with rods uh, because they, they were accused of inciting this riot in Philippi and they throw them in jail. And then after the earthquake happens and all the prison bars are opened and the Philippian jailer converts, the Roman authorities want to uh, usher Paul out of town. And Paul says, no, I am a Roman citizen, and what you did was wrong, and we need to have a discussion about that. And so the magistrate apologizes, and, and then he wants to usher Paul out of town again. And Paul says, no, I, I, I want to go to Lydia's house first. Why? Why does he want to do this? Well, one, he wants to farewell the Christians there, but he also wants to show this magistrate that these Christians have rights. Not only exercising his rights for himself, but to protect the church. Paul never eliminates rights, and nor should we. That's why Christians get so zealous about issues in our culture today. As Sam prayed, fighting against abortion laws. If there was ever a time to fight for somebody's rights, then surely it's the voiceless ones, right? The taking of human life that has been created by God and terminating it for the sake of convenience. 
That is certainly stripping away of the rights of a person. Not to mention the the fight against modern-day slavery or the fight against uh, racial inequality or the fight against gender inequality. These are all Christian biblical issues. And we have rights and we should defend these rights. Second, we'll see in verse 12 and then in verses 15 to 18 that Paul says, Neither I nor Christians always exercise our rights. There's a reason why he forfeited his rights, uh, his right to take an income from the Corinthians, verse 15. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. And what is his boasting? Paul wanted to preach the gospel for free. Paul was in Corinth as a missionary. And just like when we have missionaries that go overseas and serve in different parts of the world, when those missionaries go to those areas and those regions, do they take money from the local people to support their ministry? No. Those people are either not yet Christians or they are not mature Christians. Once someone has that spiritual maturity and they understand the work of ministry, they recognize the importance and they as members of the family and members of the body want to do their part in supporting the ministers and the ministries and the staff. But the Corinthians are not there yet, as evidenced by the amount of labor that Paul has to go through to clarify so many of these issues in these two letters. There's a lack of maturity in the church in Corinth. In contrast, the the church in Philippi is a good example of a church that has maturity. They give generously to Paul and his ministry. And even uh, Paul commends them to the Corinthians in in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But if Paul had the Corinthians giving to him, it would have undermined his message. And all he would have been, he would have just looked like all the other mercenaries and all the other philosophers and all the other super apostles that were roaming the streets in Corinth. So Paul wants nothing to hinder the gospel. Verse 12, we have not made use of this right, But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That's Paul's goal. His goal is not to hinder the gospel and not to take away the freeness of the gospel as we minister it, right? Because the gospel is free. And that's why my heart breaks every time I see these charlatans on TV that are telling people that the only way to get blessed is to give to their ministry. And they hinder the gospel from people. And they have made it about our our sinful nature's desire to accumulate money and things. And they use that as a way to get in. And they have ultimately set these people out on on a broken path that will lead to sadness and brokenness and, and, and and a horribly wrong view of God. And who God is. 
3rd, verses 19 to 27, not only does the Christian not eliminate rights and not always exercise rights, but the Christian is never enslaved to rights. Verse 19, Paul says, I am free from all. I am not a slave, but I make myself a slave, not to anyone in particular, but to everyone, that I may win as many as possible to the kingdom. His entire mentality has shifted from protecting and claiming and defending his rights to pursuing the kingdom of God at the expense of all of his rights. Not ruining your rights, but letting his own rights go. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. If Paul is in a, with a group of Jews, then he is not going to eat a bacon sandwich for lunch. Even though it is his right to do so. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. If Paul is with his Gentile friends, then he, can have, he will have his bacon sandwich for lunch. It's not saying if Paul's Gentile friends decide they want to rob the local shop that he is free to do that. It's not talking about sin. No, it's remaining under the moral law, but free from the ceremonial and the civil law. Paul has the right to do those things. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Have you ever known that person that is so proud of their rights that they want to rub it in everybody's face. I went to a restaurant with a group of friends, and one of the friends in the group had struggled with alcoholism in his past. And he was a non-believer. And so most everyone refrained from ordering alcohol at the mealtime. But there was this one guy who was a Christian And he knew the situation. And he still wanted to rub his freedom card in everyone's face. Yes, you have the freedom. But the way you take such pride in the freedom, it's almost like he was enslaved to the right he had. Not to mention the testimony that this gives to the non-believers around the table. Paul says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And Paul was enslaved to the Lord of that mission. Therefore, he would not be enslaved to any man nor be enslaved to his own claim for rights. When missionaries go overseas, are there not things that they have to give up in order to build bridges with the gospel For people in those communities? Um, A close friend of mine who had just moved into a new neighborhood. And in that neighborhood, the people there tend to vote more D than R. And he went around and he put up a bunch of Donald Trump 
election signs in his yard. Now, is that his right? Yes, that's his right. But in hindsight, was it the best way to build inroads into that new community into which he had just moved? No. In fact, he'll tell you he still gets dirty looks from neighbors. And he's lost an opportunity to open dialogue with these people. He, he's drawn a line in the sand and said, these are my identification cards. And essentially, again, as Sam prayed, these, the political things are drawing too many lines in the sand. Well, why would we be so overt with something like that when we know it will cause a problem? Why does Paul do all of this? Where is he getting this idea of forfeiting his rights? It's from his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who forfeited everything. Who could have called on a legion of angels to call, pull him down from the cross. But instead he chose to give up his rights so that we can be called sons and daughters. Be imitators of me, Paul says. Chapter 11, verse 1. As I imitate Christ. And then there's a shift here. And Paul shifts his point to the Christian life. And he uses this imagery of running a race or, or being a boxer. And the object being to win the prize, to win the race, right? Paul is telling Christians to exert every effort to win, to attain the prize. And what is the prize? The prize is eternal life itself. It's not an, an, an amendment. It's nothing, not something additional. It's not some special prize that you get. It is eternal life itself. Runners run for a wreath of leaves on their heads. We run for an imperishable wreath, a crown of glory that will never fade. And we run because we know what is ahead. We are not lost in the darkness of life, groping around for the light switch, as so many in our world are. That's why it says, do you not know everyone runs the race? Every human being is running a race, but only some are running with a prize in mind, with a goal in mind. We know what lies before us. Therefore, we don't run aimlessly, lost, trying to figure things out. We don't waste our energy boxing the air. But with intentionality and purpose, we make our moves. We live self-disciplined lives as we are growing in our faith. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Or literally what Paul's saying, I give myself a black eye. Now, a lot of people have taken this and completely misunderstood it. This does not mean that he's beating himself up physically. For the body is a temple. But he's saying... I. Discipline. He disciplines himself as a fighter does, as any athlete would in training. Why? Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is Paul. Is this Paul? 
This is Paul. Paul, uh, saved by grace alone. Paul, Paul, whose good works are just but filthy rags before God. And yet Paul himself says, I discipline myself lest I myself should be disqualified. Disqualified from receiving the reward, the wreath of eternal life. Surely Paul doesn't think this way. He cannot lose his salvation. And yet this is the language that Paul chooses to use. Because there will be some who think that they have the promise of the imperishable wreath. They think they have eternal life because of something they did. And yet they never disciplined themselves and they never grew. They never actually submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They used mere words or they followed empty rituals. While we firmly here at Apostles believe in the preservation of the saints, the Bible still uses warnings and exhortations to persevere until the end in order to receive salvation. It also promises that God will preserve His people to the final day. Do you see the tension here? Do we work out our faith in fear and trembling? Or those who give him the fathers, uh, he'll lose none. There's a tension here. Even in this letter, we read in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians that Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It sounds like preservation and assurance, does it not? But then we read in these verses in chapter 9 and in 10 that we must continue in the faith in order to be saved. So what's happening? Is it one or the other? Is it what's happening? I think these warnings and admonitions in the New Testament are one of the means that is used to preserve Christians in the faith. Because when we read these things, our hearts burn inside us like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Were our hearts not burning within us when He spoke to us? The Holy Spirit speaks to us through these warnings and reminds us what we have been called to. And so we wake from our slumber and we are renewed. Romans chapter 12, daily renewing our minds by the word of God because we know that those words bring life and hope and salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, hear the words of life. Allow them to penetrate into your heart and into your mind. Let them send you out thinking as a runner or a boxer with a goal in mind. Not fumbling around in the darkness, not running aimlessly, not boxing and beating the air. But a goal in mind. You have a prize in mind. You have an eternal reward in mind. And live that out not only for yourself, but remembering not to be enslaved to your rights, 
be all things to all people, that by all means you might save some. What did Christ forfeit? What did he give up? He laid down his rights so that we can have life. Paul has given up his rights. He's become all things to all people that he might save some. Be imitators of me as I have been an imitator of Christ. Will those words penetrate your hearts and minds as you go out into your workplace and go to your schools and consider your neighborhoods and your work colleagues and your school colleagues and all these things? Will we have that thought of giving up our rights for the sake of the gospel? That he may save some. Let's pray. Father, I love that we have freedom in Christ. I love that we have rights. That we are no longer bound by law. And yet there are times when I have the opportunity to forfeit that right so that someone else may hear the truth, receive, respond. But often my heart is selfish and I don't care about that person because I care about my freedom and I care about my right. And as wonderful as those things are, how much greater it would be to bring people into the kingdom out of darkness and into light. So Father, would you impress these things upon us? Would you put the burden of souls on our very hearts as Sam prayed earlier that we would understand what it is to be an apostle, a sent one. For we come bearing good news. But it's hard to share good news when we keep it to ourselves or think only of ourselves. We want to run the race well. We want to be good athletes who are self-disciplined, who are trained, and who are willing to forfeit things for the sake of others. Would you give us hearts like that today, this week, this month? For, oh, what a mighty work you can do through your people who are willing and obedient So use us, Father, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.